Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the Ecosiv Podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting the work that we are doing by making a donation at ecosiv.org. For today's episode, Jeremy Fackenthal speaks with philosopher and religious ethicist Michael Hogue about his work on political theology and the Anthropocene. Michael's most recent book is titled American Imminence, Democracy for an Uncertain World, which was published in 2018 by Columbia University Press. Having read the book myself, I highly recommend it to any of our listeners, especially if you're interested in exploring the intersections of philosophy, religion, and climate politics. Michael is a creative and rigorous scholar who has an impressive ability to work across numerous academic disciplines. Jeremy talks with Michael about a number of the key concepts developed in American Imminence, including the Anthropocene Paradox, Climate Wickedness, and Resilient Democracy. Among many other topics, they also discuss process philosophy and theology, the notions of deep adaptation and deep transformation, and where he finds hope in the present. And now, here's Jeremy and Michael. Welcome, everyone. I am pleased to be here with Mike Hogue today. Michael Hogue has been a faculty member at Meadville Lombard Theological School since 2005, teaching and writing at the intersection of theology, religious ethics, and philosophy of religion. He uses the pragmatist, process, and naturalist strands in American philosophy to explore issues related to religion and the environment, political theology, religion and science, and social ethics. And today, we are um, very pleased to talk about uh, Mike's recent book, American Imminence, Democracy for an Uncertain World. So, Mike, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, My first question is, uh, why did you write this book and, and why is this book important right now? Well, I think the shortest answer to why it's important now and what motivated me would be to say that it just feels like the world is on fire right now. Um, I mean, literally, we're living through a time of climate emergency, rising average global temperatures, melting glaciers, unpredictable weather patterns, um, changes in the jet stream, acidifying oceans, um, climate refugees. The world just seems to be in a state of upheaval in its, in, in its planetary you know, aspects. But I would say also, and relatedly, in its political aspects. So I think we're living in a time of like mutually amplifying political and planetary climate changes. And that's creating a lot of disruption. That's creating a lot of anxiety. It's doing a lot of harm. And uh, in a state like this of multiple systems in a state of upheaval and breakdown, that's just a recipe for humans doing bad things and for the appeal of simplistic uh, solutions to complex problems. Mm -hmm. And so at the same time that we see planetary breakdown in in all these respects, we're also seeing rising authoritarianism 
um, the appeal of populist authoritarians uh, around the world here in the U.S. and elsewhere. So it's, it's a scary time. So I can't help but as an engaged scholar and you know, somebody that's concerned about um, the planet and our politics to want to respond to all of this and to intervene in whatever way that I can with the tools that I have. You know, I'm not an elected politician. I'm not a policy wonk. I'm kind of a theologian, um, a little bit of a religious ethicist and a philosopher of religion. And the traditions that, that have shaped me and influenced me are the ones that I write about in this book. And I feel like they've got some real uh, potential and implications for the kind of problems that we're facing. So yeah. this book, American Imminence, is an attempt to kind of marshal those resources in a way that intervenes in these planetary and political crises. I loved the way that you guided us through the book toward um, this idea of resilient democracy. And I want to help sort of walk our listeners through the argument um, to get there and to see where maybe there is some space uh, for hope um, at the end. So in the first chapter, you begin by connecting American exceptionalism with the idea of the Redeemer symbolic. Can you sort of briefly um, explain what the Redeemer symbolic is and and why that's significant here? Sure. Yeah. So I think I should say, first of all, that, that the structure of the book as a whole is organized around three sets of theses. There are critical theses in the opening couple of chapters. There are conceptual theses in the middle chapters, and then constructive theses towards the end. Um, So you're asking about uh, some arguments I make and some concepts I I develop in this chapters dealing with critical theses. So the first chapter is about American exceptionalism and the Redeemer symbolic and um, identifying the, the moral and the theological core of American exceptionalism. And, and this it provides the, say, say the, the logic of American exceptionalism that can be traced all through the history of our nation. And the Redeemer Symbolic is organized around three concepts, exception, extraction, and externalization. You know, it's a constellation of both biblical and, and secular narratives I think the the most obvious one is the story of the Christ as the redeeming savior of the world, or whether it's the church, or whether it's the nation, or whether it's the market. This exceptional figure has a kind of saving power, and um, that saving power justifies, it even sanctifies, I think you could say, the extraction of some kind of value and the externalization of cost. So in this first chapter, I'm really trying to to analyze and then trace the way this Redeemer symbolic works through American history and is organized around these three concepts and the harm that it has done. And I say that this is the dominant American theopolitical tradition, and I want to articulate it and critique it and analyze it in order to be able, in the end, towards the end of the book, to, to recommend an alternative. And you also talk about um, how the Redeemer symbolic has been monetized or gotten swept into um, economic systems and economic logic as well, which provides a helpful setup for talking about, I think, at least two other places in the book where you um, offer some critiques of neoliberal capitalism, which I thought was a helpful point there. 
Yeah. So I trace this, the, the way this Redeemer symbolic works through three different registers and historical periods. I refer to the first register and period as the ecclesial phase. Um, and this is the settler colonial period. And uh, the exception in this case, the exceptional figure or phenomenon is um, the church and the, the, the Puritan church, the Puritan ideal of the church. And what is going to be saved is the, the larger, you know, global Christianity. This particular people will be the saving agent of that, of that work. What's extracted is um, you know, land from native peoples. What's externalized are the costs of that extraction. There was, you know, during this period, a very strict kind of moral code. And so folks like Roger Williams and Ann, Hut Ann Hutchinson were externalized from those communities. So that's the way the logic works in this early settler colonial phase. And then I talk about a, uh, a nationalist phase. It's really an ethno-nationalist phase. And this is the you know, manifest destiny, which um, is in some cases just an instance of classic colonialism, the exploitation, the extraction of territory. Um, but it's organized around this Redeemer symbolic as well. In this case, though, it's not the church that is the saving exceptional figure, but it is the, the ideal of the republic and the nation, the white nation, the Anglo-Saxon form of the nation state in particular in this history. Um, and again, land is extracted, uh, indigenous peoples are displaced and removed from their homelands, you know, removed in, in quotes, um, and, and re forced to resettle elsewhere. The later form of the Redeemer symbolic I talk about as a kind of market triumphalism or the neoliberal phase. And in this case, it's not the church or the nation, but it's the market, a concept of the free market as that which is saving. The market is the guarantor of merit and dessert. Like if you're poor, you've, you've earned that. If you're wealthy, you've earned that. It's, so it, it kind of takes on this sovereign power that the nation had during the nationalist phase, that the church had during the ecclesial phase. And that's kind of where we're at right now is in the midst yeah. of this market triumphalist moment, neoliberal yeah. redeemer symbolic. Yeah. And all this sort of sets us up nicely for a discussion of um, the Anthropocene. And I think our listeners are familiar with that concept and familiar conceptually with the Anthropocene paradox. But can you just say briefly uh, what the Anthropocene paradox is um, and why maybe how exceptionalism is tied to, to that notion? Yeah, so your listeners know I've listened to a number of your episodes. I'm a listener. <laughs> um, <laughs> And this is, yeah, this is a big topic. So the name that, that many um, geologists have proposed for the particular geological time period that we're living through, and it signals that we're living through a human age for the earth. And of course, there are lots of, as, as your listeners probably know, there are lots of debates about what Eileen Christ calls the nomenclature of this idea, whether it's appropriate to refer to it as a human age for the earth. And this is something that Jason Moore also engages. And, and the reason it's an interesting question is because it's really not the case that the whole of the human species through the whole history of our species is responsible for the state of the planet. And yeah. instead, it's really a particular civilizational form of Western modernity that has driven us into 
the you know the planetary crises that we're facing. I, I refer to this as the Anthropocene paradox because what I'm trying to get at with that concept is that this condition that we're in has revealed to us the illusion that we're no longer separate from nature, right? That's not something that everybody has always thought, but it's certainly a core idea in Western modernity that the human is separate. I mean, this goes back to the Cartesian distinction between um, res extensa and res cogitans, uh, thinking things and extended things. Um, the Anthropocene reveals that we're entangled with planetary dynamics, that we're ecological creatures. And so at the very moment that um, we've overhumanized the planet, we are to the point of all these crises that you address on your podcast, we're rediscovering that we are creatures of nature. So as we've made the planet in our human image, homo imago, we're discovering ourselves or rediscovering ourselves as terra bestiae earth creatures. That's the paradox. That's you know, kind of the concept that I'm playing with in the second chapter of the book. Um, then also in that chapter, you explain uh, the complexity of the climate crisis by, by using the term wickedness, um, so that this is not a, a simple problem to solve, but there are multifaceted or multi-layered issues here. Can you talk about what you mean by climate wickedness? Um, and, and what that means in terms of um, complex systems. Yeah, so a wicked problem is, uh, you know, the kind of problem that is not only complicated and hard to solve, but resists solution or resists the silver bullet or the simple solution. Um, and in fact, it's the kind of problem that can be exacerbated or amplified by the application of conventional problem-solving repertoires because those conventional problem-solving repertoires are often embedded in the very types of ways of thinking and doing things that have brought about the problem you know, to begin with. So wicked problems are you know, exacerbated by the application of conventional problem-solving. In many cases, the political and the economic context of conventional problem-solving are indentured to interests that have much to do with the creation of wicked problems in the first place. Wicked problems are structurally embedded in um, social and economic systems and reinforced by cultural habits and values. And so partly for this reason, um, the drivers of wicked problems can be hard to see and therefore hard to analyze. The causal structure of wicked problems are nonlinear and their effects are uneven. So, you know, Thinking about climate as an instance, I think it's a classic instance of a wicked problem. I mean, I'm living in the Chicago area, and our rainfall has been record level for several years in a row. And we are constantly, you know, our rivers are overflowing, basements are being flooded. So we're having record rainfall and, you know, uh, precipitation. In other places, there's drought and, and heat waves. So the effects of climate as a wicked problem are uneven. And therefore, you know, you, you experience the problem in very, very different ways. And so one other feature of the wicked problem idea that I think is interesting and relevant to climate is that they provoke strong reactions and positions. Mm -hmm. And the urgency of the threats and the complexity of the risks of wicked problems generate ideological polarization. 
and simplistic thinking and political reactivity, all of which only intensify the wicked problem, right? So it's like this, it's just this knot of competing interpretations and analyses and motivations and interests that just collude together to make this kind of thing seemingly insoluble. I want to back up just a little bit and go back to um, the notion of the Anthropocene paradox and and where you go with that in terms of sketching out nature as uh, an entangled web in which of which we are a part. So you turn then to a few folks from the American imminent tradition or imminentalist tradition to help sort of tease out conceptually uh, or philosophically what that means. So without going too far into Dewey, James, and Whitehead, can you describe the metaphysical shift or philosophical shift in the American imminental tradition and why that is significant for this work? Sure. So what, what I outline in the first couple of chapters is the ending of the idea of human separation from nature on the one hand and the ending of certainty. So the ending of the idea of human separation from nature is something that, that the Anthropocene is all about right? The ending of that illusion. The ending of certainty is the way I talk about the kind of moral condition that we're in in a time of wicked problems. The climate emergency being, you know, a perfect example of that. So the ending of certainty and the ending of human separation from nature. So these are contemporary, you know, experiences and conditions, and they are also the ones that were generative of the classical American philosophical tradition. So Dewey, James, Whitehead, their interpreters and others. For all of these thinkers, you know, more or less, to be human is to be a creature of nature who can only know nature from the inside, imminently. And so the American immanental tradition is, in that sense, I think, a rich resource for thinking through the types of contemporary experiences and conditions that we're on, you know, undergoing. The American immanental tradition, as I think about it, is both epistemologically and ontologically anti-exceptionalist. It's epistemologically anti-exceptionalist because as knowers, we're always a part of nature. We cannot get outside of it. We cannot transcend the contingencies and the accidents and the, um, the patterns and the precarities of nature to know something, absolutely. And so we only know from the inside and that therefore we can only know hypothetically and provisionally. So it's epistemically anti-exceptionalist. It's ontologically anti-exceptionalist minimally in the sense that for most of these thinkers, we are creatures of nature. And so any kind of species supremacy is kind of challenged or undermined then from the get-go ontologically. That doesn't mean that there aren't differences in nature. It's to say that um, we are part of the same causes and conditions as all other things. So that's that's essentially what you know. I'm, I'm then exploring through the chapters where I develop the conceptual theses that will provide the infrastructure for a constructive response to the critiques that I've, that we've just talked through, you know, recently. I was really struck by, I mean, first of all, I loved your use of Whitehead and that you pulled from his work on symbolism. I was struck by something that had not occurred to me or that I had not registered uh, before but you talk about Whitehead's account of social symbolism and say that social change can be catalyzed by the improvised revision of existing symbolic repertoires 
or the innovative formation or subversive interjection of new symbols. So in order to unpack that for listeners, could you maybe just say a few words about how symbolism uh, works for Whitehead and then sort of lead into that idea of social change? So one of the ways the immanental tradition, and especially James and, and Whitehead, is through this idea that we feel the world as we know it. And so what I'm getting at there is that both for James's radical empiricism and for Whitehead's radical speculative empiricism, the, the deepest roots of experience are effective and felt. So we feel the world as we know it. Now, actually, in the book, I say we feel the world before we know it. <laughs> and I've had uh, one, one reviewer challenge that um, and appropriately challenge that because by saying we feel the world before we know it, I'm kind of reinstating this binary between feeling and, and knowing, which is precisely the problem that Whitehead in particular is getting at. So I think you could say we feel the world as we know it, we feel the world before we reason it, okay? But the point is that there are, you know, experience and knowing for Whitehead and for this tradition are deeply effective, okay? Um, so typically when, when folks think about empiricism, they're thinking of sensory you know, empiricism. And for, for Whitehead and for James, sensory experience is already an abstraction from felt experience. So felt experience is the deepest level of experience for Whitehead and to a similar extent for James. So symbols are ways of over time that felt experience comes to be registered and articulated and expressed. And symbols then kind of um, collect felt experience over time. Um, symbols then you know, freight and transmit the meanings and the articulations of those felt experiences, and they create a kind of inertia, right? So that um, they take on a sort of life of their own. Now, when the underlying conditions of felt experience are disrupted or changed, then there's disruption to the symbol system as well, mm -hmm. potentially. When enough of that happens, and happens in a significant way, then there's potential for simple change, for simple reconstruction. So the disruption create the, the disruption of the symbol system creates new potential in the symbol system for re-symbolizing and restoring the world. I want to just pause for a second and refer back. There's uh, you know one of your episodes. Um, is dealing with this uh, debate between deep adaptation and deep transformation. And Jeremy Lent is responding to, I forget the other, the other scholar's name, but the other scholars are making a case for deep adaptation. Basically, you know, uh, there's no chance that there's not going to be massive you know, human extinction. And Jeremy Lent is making the, the alternative argument for deep transformation. And part of the point he's making is one that I explore in my book too. And it's that whenever systems are disrupted and disturbed, there's new potential in them. So the, the concept I use for that in this book is catagenesis. When a system is in a state of breakdown, 
there's potential for, you know, there's new potential, there's literally new potential, new energy in the system, old ways of doing things, or in this case, old ways of symbolizing things are being broken up. And that creates alternative possibilities. What Lent argues in his you know, response to the adaptation idea is for the transformative potential of disruption and breakdown. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what I'm doing in, in, in this book, too. In the, the, yeah. the, the constructive turn is, okay, there's emergency, there's planetary chaos, there's disruption. Um, is this only a bad thing? Is it also possible that it's creating the conditions for novelty, for emer- the emergence of new symbols, new ways of being, thinking, and valuing, and feeling the world? And so that's the part of the, you know, the Whitehead work on symbolism and social change that I think is so, you know, so interesting to me and where I think that there's some reason for, for hope in the end is that disruption and breakdown can be generative of renewal and new things. Now, it's also possible that disruption and breakdown, and this is why the debate's kind of, you know, impossible really to decide on adaptation or transformation it's also possible that disruption breakdown can just lead to the dissolution of systems and to total collapse and that's where the adaptation argument we're heading for collapse it's you know and and lent and others are saying no we're in a state of breakdown that can lead to new possibilities and so let's focus formation rather than adaptation we're in the midst of the breakdowns and that's creating all the uncertainty and the anxiety um, you know, that, that's tied in with the rise of, a, you know, the authoritarian kind of tendency, but it's also creating new political and social energies and movements. That's why I was particularly interested in bringing some of Whitehead's work on symbolism into this discussion. That's great. Thank you. And I want to come back to, um, to that idea of hope in a minute. To close out the middle section of the book, you also take the, the immanental tradition and look at the religious implications of that. It seems mostly to, to question that idea of certainty or to show that even within religious systems, there can be this notion of, of uncertainty that is helpful. Can you tease out exactly um, what you find helpful or motivating about the religious implications of the American immanental tradition? So, you know, one of the things that I that I say in the book is that the American immanental tradition, you know, insofar as it's epistemologically and ontologically anti-exceptionalist, it really leads to the disavowal of traditional theism or classical theism. Um, I would say even, and this is something that I kind of explore in the book too, that um, although Whitehead is a part of this tradition, that the Whiteheadian concept of God is a kind of contradiction in Whitehead's system. And that's maybe a, a different conversation. But I think that the, the religious implications of the American immanental tradition are appealing and resonant because I think a lot of folks have trouble with the traditional classical conception of a God who is intervening from beyond in our world. And so there's a breakdown of traditional ways of being, I mean, it's not the only thing that's happening. So let me, let me back up just a second. Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, came out in 2007, and it, it had a big impact on me. And you know, one of the things that he's tracing in that book is how 
the disturbance of this traditional concept of God has led you know, not to the disillusion of ways of being religious, but the explosion of new ways of being religious and imagining the sacred and the divine. So I think the American immanental tradition is part of that. Well, it leads, I think, to the disavowal of any traditional concept of a, of a sovereign, omnistructured God who knows all things, is all powerful, etc. Um, I don't think that this entails the rejection of all ways of symbolizing the divine or the sacred or even imagining God. To have meaning and uh, 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 within an immanental theological frame, any symbolization, you know, symbolizations of God, the divine or the sacred can reflect the finally mysterious and morally ambiguous patterns, precarities, and processes of nature naturing. So one of the things that I do in the book is say, look at some of the theological interpretations of philosophies of American imminence, and they, they go in a couple of different directions. There's one that goes in an aesthetic direction, and there's one that goes in an axiological or moral direction. But the ultimate is not this God beyond, but the aesthetic patterns, precarities, and processes in nature become ultimate you know, is one possible way of looking at it, or a particular strain or dynamic or set of energies within nature, nature, that which is productive of good. Um, All kinds of questions are provoked by each of these options, but they are legitimate. And I think, you know, for me anyway, very appealing religious and even theological options in the wake of the death of the classical concept of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a time that, at least in many areas, you know, spiritual but not religious, people are exploring ways of, of imagining the divine. I think that there's real creative potential here for having some broader appeal. Now, at the same time, that I think it's true that there are what Charles Taylor calls a supernova effect of the death of the classical concept of God. Um, so that there's an explosion of new ways. Of being. There's also a lot of reaction against that. And so at the same time that you see right. innovation and experiment and whatnot, you see a lot of you know, the, the rise of fundamentalisms and, and, and orthodoxies as well. Um, so that's an instance of polarization, right? In a state of breakdown and change and disruption, new energies are released, potentials being reorganized in new ways, but there's also a reaction to the breakdown that wants to return to classical ways of, of, of being religious. Now, it's just a really interesting time, I think, theologically and spiritually for us. You also, in that chapter, introduce the, um, the notions of vulnerability and resilience, and then expand on those quite a bit um, in the final chapter. And there, there is a significant relationship between those two words for you. Can you describe what that is? And then we'll sort of build toward a description of resilient democracy. Yeah. So vulnerability and resilience, um, the discourses and the concepts of vulnerability and resilience really have two different but related uh, genealogies. One comes out of kind of psychosocial Uh, work, so on the psychology of human development and the human experience of trauma, and then the other is socio-ecological, and this is out of um, systems ecology and those fields. My interest comes through the systems ecology uh, genealogy, Um, so I tend to think of these, um, 
I really think that there are, there's systems concepts inevitably, mm-hmm. uh, whether you're thinking about an individual person or whether you're thinking about planetary dynamics, they're systems concepts. So that's important to say, first of all. Now, it's also important to, to acknowledge that um, resilience is one of those kind of trendy, catchy phrases that's just been totally overused in the last decade or so. And so almost doesn't have the conceptual grip that I think it could have. So I'm aware of that. And I, and I, I think that uh, resilience can be understood in simple and complex ways. I think when most folks are thinking of resilience, they're thinking of what I call simple resilience, which is simply the bouncing back effect of something. Somebody, some, there's some kind of disruption in a system, again, whether it's a human person or whether it's a community or whether it's a forest system, there's a disruption. And if that disruption occurs or perturbs a system that has resilience, that system will bounce back to its original state. That's simple resilience. To me, complex resilience is really the kind of resilience that is much more adaptive and innovative. So the system learns through the disruption and the change and takes on a kind of intelligence or agency in the world that that can be transformative. So complex resilience is, is what's especially interesting to me. Now, that kind of resilience entails a deep awareness of vulnerability right? And a a deep awareness of where there are vulnerabilities in a system in order to anticipate disruption and perturbation, in order to prepare for that kind of disruption, and to learn from it. So they are, in in a sense, vulnerability and resilience are entwined. um, And awareness of vulnerability, vulnerability is inevitable in a world that's comprised in a Whiteheadian way, you know, uh, systems of systems and nested systems and everything is interrelated, um, internally related as well as externally related. There's no getting outside of vulnerability. Okay. So now an awareness of that is an important to building capacity for complex resilience. So my interest in, in those concepts is both, you know, for their kind of the conceptual power and helping me to think through the system dynamics of the various issues that we're facing. I think there's also a real critical and constructive power in them as well, because if we can identify vulnerabilities in those systems that we morally critique, then maybe we can accelerate the demise of those systems or the disillusion of them. If we can identify the vulnerabilities in systems that we think are, are, are ones that we want to advance for moral and other reasons, then we know how to build more resilience in this system in order to extend its life and its work in the world. So that leads into, in the final chapter, you talk about first the, the difference between rebellion and revolution. And then second, if we, so if we can tease out the difference or or distinction between those two, um, I want to go back then to the idea of climate wickedness as providing the opening for radical change and have you comment on how a resilient democracy provides the means for doing that? So this distinction between rebellion and revolution basically is one that comes from, uh, at least the way I'm, I'm working with the concepts, comes from Grace Lee Box 
the Chinese American black power activist who was based in Detroit and uh, with her husband, Jimmy Boggs, has had a big influence on you know, the American left and a number of social justice and racial justice movements. I was really fortunate to have a chance to meet with her. I was in a group doing some environmental justice work in the Detroit area. And this is not unusual. She had people to her house all the time, but it was a special opportunity to go and to meet her and talk with her in her living room. And this was just before she died a few years ago. And in that living room conversation, and also in some of her, her writings, you know, she made this important distinction between rebellion and revolution, something that really stuck out for me. So she says, um, rebellion is the work of denouncement and of critique, and revolution entails moving beyond that to pronouncement and creativity. Rebellion is the rejection of one model, uh, revolution is the innovation, the creation of a new model. So there's probably a lot more that could be said about that. But, but for me, what was interesting was to think about, well, how does this map onto some of the resilience stuff that, that's interesting to me? The idea is that revolution really entails resilience. There needs to be rebellion because you need people and movements to be calling into question the status quos that are problematic. You need disruption and you need agitation. But if that's all you have, then you just have breakdown, critique, and denouncement. If you really want to change things, not just intervene and interrupt the way things are, um, but change and transform the world, then you need revolution. And, and revolution is about innovating and incubating new ideas and new models of you know, economy, new ways of being in community, new ways of being spiritual and religious, um, new ways of doing politics um, that have the chance over time of really making change. And that requires a lot of resilience because any of that innovative work, any of that incubating work um, is gonna meet all kinds of resistance. Folks with interests who are rooted in the way things used to be or the way things have always been done. I mean, it's always been a struggle, any kind of revolutionary work. So that's part of what I'm interested in with these ideas and the idea that there's no you know, finalized form of democracy. Democracy is, in essence, the struggle for transformative change. And so it's a revolutionary project at its core. And that means that we need resilient democratic communities to maintain you know, that work over the long haul. And that's what I start to articulate in the last chapter of the book. So before we go to the final question, I wanna to touch just quickly on the notion of cross-cultural coalitions. So rather than just community, which tends toward homogenization, cross-cultural coalitions and, and connecting with people who are different from you mm. is important. And there's a kind of vulnerability in that. Um, can you say why you go with that, what that gets us? Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting to me is that there is all of this, this social and, and, and environmental innovation that gives us reason for hope. Paul Hawk and 
makes the observation there. And, you know, I don't know if this is empirically based or it, it's, it's anecdotal for him. He says, we're living through the world's largest ever people's movement. And there, you know, he's pointing out that in all the places that he goes to lecture and to teach and you know, to work, he sees all this small and mid-scale innovative work around human rights, around indigenous peoples, um, around environmental justice and whatnot, and says that that's a reason for hope, right? So in the midst of all the disruption and the breakdown, there's the emergence of all this new positive, constructive energy and work. Now, the thing that I've learned from some systems theory and resilience ideas is that a resilient system needs diversity, but that diversity needs to be interconnected. All right. So a resilient system has redundancy and diversity in it. It's agency is dispersed rather than concentrated or monopolized. When there's concentrated power, um, when power is monopolized in, in a system, that system becomes vulnerable in some pretty serious ways. So a resilient system has diversity and redundancy in it. But if that diversity and redundancy isn't interconnected, then the system is vulnerable to collapse and disillusion. Okay. So I, I was thinking about all these things together and, you know, Paul Hawkins' idea, we're living through the world's largest ever people's movement, but, and, and it's dispersed and it's diverse, but that's not enough, right? So it, those dispersed energies need to be coordinated and interconnected in ways in order for the, you know, the movement to really take on the power to transform the world. So that's where, you know, I, it, it was from that idea or that kind of you know, concern that this, you know, this commitment to the importance of solidarities and cross-cultural and multicultural coalitions came in. If we want to build complex resilience in you know, democratic movements for social change, racial justice, and climate justice, then we need to be able to bridge across our various differences in order to interconnect the dispersed agencies and powers that are bubbling up at the moment, right? So that resilient democracy is a way of conceptualizing that and saying all of this innovation and incubation is great, but we need connection as well. And I think that one of the, you know, one of the hard things about the time that we're in is that even within the left, even within the left, as if that should be a surprise. There's a lot of self-defeating stuff happening, right? Purity yeah. tests and some real like turf wars around, you know, who's doing what and about, um, you know, all kinds of things. And that's, that's just all self-defeating. So we need to be able to coalesce around some common purposes across our differences. I, identity differences, some ideological differences, in order to really build the resilience that's needed for revolutionary change. And you've already answered this in part, but um, I want to ask you where you see hope and if there are more concrete or tangible places where you see radical change beginning to happen. Some of the things that have really interested me and that I find as reasons for hope are the climate justice movement, um, the 350 movement, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, the rising, you know, the re 
kind of the new interest in the commons and commoning movements. Um, so these are examples of innovations in response to breakdown and examples of the kind of dispersed distributed power that is a precondition for but is in itself insufficient to revolutionary social change. So I see a lot of that and find hope in a lot of that. I also am very troubled by the coalescing of those things, right? So I teach at a theological school where we spend a lot of time analyzing and critiquing things and also working at finding not only reasons for hope, but ways of mobilizing. One of the books that I've been teaching in some of my classes is by uh, Joanna Macy and Chris Johnstone. It's called Active Hope. And um, they articulate three primary outlets for active hope. So what they're talking about is hope as a kind of praxis rather than just a disposition or you know, something that's in your head. So the practice of hope has three primary outlets for them. Actions to slow the damage to the earth and its beings. So actions to slow damage, that's the work that you could say maybe of resistance mm -hmm. and disruption. Analyses of, second one is analyses of structural causes of harm and damage. So that's critique. The creation of structural alternatives, that's the work of innovation, and a shift in consciousness, values, and practices. And that's the deep work of restoring and re-symbolizing the world. So active hope includes these three, you know, for them, these three types of things. So I think the, a way to summarize that would be to say active hope or the process of hope, as they outline it, entails resistance and critique and rebellion, it entails imagination and innovation, and it entails embodiment and realization, okay? Um, so in, in some of my you know, current thinking around these things, um, I haven't yet really gotten off the ground very much with the next book, but this one, American Imminence, leaves off with this idea of resilient democracy, and it's pretty abstract. It's essentially you know, articulating what I was just talking through, the need for building coalescence and coalitions across the diverse innovations, and yet it leaves off at that, with that kind of an abstract statement. What I'm interested in now is how the work of resilient democracy, and, and here this comes back to the hope question, requires people and movements to take on several different types of roles and not ever to think that those roles are the exclusively right ones to take on, okay? And the four roles that I'm thinking of are, you know, we need agitators and disruptors. We okay, but if that's all there is, that's that's problematic. We also need innovators and incubators, people who are imagining and prefiguring the alternatives. We also need connectors and networkers who are able to build the coalitions. And we need amplifiers who are able to articulate and communicate what's happening so that it rises to the level of visibility. So one of the things that, that I remember thinking when Paul Hopkins made what to me is an outrageous statement, we're living through the world's largest ever people's movement. And I thought, where is it? Why can't I see it? 
you know, what, so we live in a time of spectacle, right? And so we, we don't see that. And partly that's, the, that's a reflection of the structural nature of this that is dispersed and distributed and disconnected. There's potential resilience there, but not unless it's connected. So we need amplifiers and connectors to build the coalitions, but also to bring it to visibility. Now, any one person may be particularly gifted for one or several of those things, but there's not, but, but if you don't have all of them working together, you don't really have change, not transformative change. There's this idea that the only kind of activism that matters is disruption and agitation. But that's not the only thing that's needed, right? There's lots of reasons to be enraged, right? And angry. And I feel that in deep ways at times. And I understand that impulse. But I'm not particularly gifted at that work. But that doesn't mean that I can't be actively practicing hope by articulating, connecting, and innovating. That's as important to transformative change as being in the streets with and, and protesting and disrupting the kind of thing that's happening today, this very moment in Hong Kong at the airport. That's critical disruption, right? You need to have that, but you also need the other things. And so my hope is that we can build the kind of movement coalescence that is needed for transformative change by taking on the work of disruption, but also the work of innovation connection and amplification um, and if we can do that then i think all the potential that's being released by the breakdown of existing systems has a chance of really creating some positive alternatives yeah. so i guess i side with jeremy lentz on that issue around transformation or adaptation so that's that's how i think about these things michael thank you so much for joining us today um, and thanks for your book American Eminence. I highly recommend it and I've enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Jeremy. I've enjoyed it very much too. And good luck with all that you're doing and with this uh, great podcast series. Thanks. Thanks.